Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12. We have been following uh, the story of Moses in Exodus as he has been uh, <clears throat> following God and bringing the people out of uh, slavery in Egypt. And he's been, been gone a while. And uh, now we get to hear of him kind of reuniting with his family that he's been away from for so long. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. We ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. God, to hear your word. God, to understand who it is that you are, who it is that you are calling us to be. And God, we pray that you would, um, you would help us this morning. Help us to hear, to understand, and to live by your word and by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law, Sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro, <clears throat> Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Turning then to our gospel reading this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Sometimes you we read uh, parts of the Bible where you're like, I'm not sure I've ever read that before, <laughs> even if you know you have. Uh, then there are other parts where you're like, I think I've heard this before. This will be one of those. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, 
because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, This is is Father's Day today, so I would... uh, yeah, just kind of wondering if there are any fathers out there who have lots of children, and if you have lots of children, uh, if you can identify which one of them is your favorite. Any volunteers? You may want to go first. <laughs> Nobody? How strange. Um, <laughs> no, favorites like that. That's not how that works. Um. <clears throat> You may, I kind of find it similar something when we look at books of the Bible. It's like, oh, what's the best book of the Bible? Which one is the best? There's 66 books in the whole Bible. Which one is the best one, though? Is there a best one? Not like that, right? It's not like that because in when we're looking at the whole of the Bible, uh, it's not like we have... Uh, some sort of weird competition show like we watch and everybody, you know, each book is competing to get the other books eliminated so they can rise to the top. We're used to those kind of competitions. We're used to these kinds of uh, tournaments and athletic events. And, uh, and we know that competition, whether in athletics, whether in business, can produce some amazing results, right? When there is competition then people tend to do better uh, as they are trying to uh, to win. Uh, and so they push themselves maybe harder than they would otherwise, et cetera, et cetera. However, when you look at the books of the Bible, are they in competition with each other? No. They're not in competition with each other. They're in cooperation with each other. And so the same way that we see that competition can be a very good thing it's not always a good thing. And so you may have uh, seen this in sports, for example, where you have uh, people who are on the same team who are so divided about uh, trying to make sure that they're the one that's, that gets all the recognition and gets all the glory and that they actually 
are doing damage to the team as a whole. And their team as a whole does worse because that one individual wants to do, uh, wants to shine. Have you seen this before? This happens in business too. Yes, the business as a whole may have, uh, may have some competition with other businesses. And yet you'll see employees who will be sabotaging the very place they work for, you know, the place they work in, uh, because, uh, they don't see themselves in cooperation with their coworkers, but in competition with them. And so as they sabotage them, it ends up bringing everybody down. And so there is a place for competition, good, healthy competition. There's a place for that. But there's also a place for cooperation. And uh, those two uh, sometimes get confused. Uh, what about the church? When we think about the church, is that something where there, you see more competition being a good thing or cooperation being a good thing? This is uh, all leading up to where we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul has been talking to this church in Corinth, or writing to them. He's planted this church, and as they have uh, grown, he had said earlier in the chapter you know, that he was the one who had planted then Apollos was a guy who came later who was watering it so that they could grow. They were in cooperation with each other. But the way that the people viewed it is, hey, these people are doing different things. They must be in competition. So which one am I going to side with in this competition? And Paul's like, that's not what we're doing at all. This is cooperation. The person who plants the seed and the person who waters it, those are working together to produce a result. And they both want the other person to do well at what they're doing. The person who's watering wants the planter to plant well. The person who plants wants the one who waters to water well. And they are working together. And if you try to sabotage the other person so you can do better, no one does better. And now he shifts the uh, the metaphor from planting uh, into buildings. In verse 9, he had said, um, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And then we pick up in verse 10. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. 
All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. All right. A lot going on here. We will not uh, get through it all in any sort of detail, but we are going to point out a, a few things. Um, this, this foundation, instead of saying, you know, I'm the one who plants and somebody else is watering, now he's shifted it and saying, I'm the one who's laid the foundation and somebody else is building on it. Same kind of idea. And when he talks about laying the foundation, did you catch what the foundation is that he's laid? It's Jesus Christ, right? And, you know, this ought to remind us of um, Jesus' parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the wise and the foolish builder and the one who builds on the rock and one who builds on sand, right? And so what, Jesus, or what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is this rock that we build on, and that's the only foundation for the church is Jesus. There's nothing else for a foundation but Jesus. And then talks about what it is, you know, as people are building, that the way that we build as we work together as a church, he says, sometimes... That's out of stuff that's going to last. That's the stuff that's in line with who Jesus is and what he's been about. And then there's stuff that's not. And so if you look at the categories of, uh, of things that he mentions there, you can build using gold and silver and costly stones and wood or hay uh, or straw. If you think back to the construction of the temple in the Old Testament, was the temple of the Old Testament built with straw? No. Of course not. It's not built with straw. We've all heard about the three little pigs, right? We know better. You don't build all that kind of stuff. And instead, this is the kind of stuff it's built with is um, the gold and silver and costly stones. Not only because these are the things that are valuable, because these are the things that last. And what he's saying here is he's using this image of the temple itself for the picture of the church. And saying to build uh, consistent with who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has taught and what he has called us to. As we are living by his spirit, we're then building up the church together in line with him. That's the gold and silver and costly stones. This is the stuff that's going to last. On the other hand, we do have, uh, there. that doesn't mean that's the only way you could build. You could build just by the wisdom of the world. You could build in the way that the world tends to build things. And he says, and that, it's not going to last. And when Jesus shows up, it will be, everything will be kind of put to the test. And there will be uh, the, the fire that will test the quality of each person's work. Um, and then he makes it very clear in case we'd missed it, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If you go back to the book of 2 Chronicles, in uh, chapter 6, man, read chapter 6. Anyway, in chapter 6, 
when the temple has been built, Solomon then prays, and you read the things uh, that he prays about, and basically what it indicates is that he understands that this temple is going to be this meeting place between God and people, that this is the place where uh, there's this overlap between heaven and earth, that when people want uh, to meet with God, it is this temple (laughs) where this is going to take place. And he goes through all kinds of things, need for forgiveness, etc. And then it says in uh, chapter 7, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. I don't know if you notice any similarities between that and an event we see in the New Testament. Pentecost. But at Pentecost, we see something very similar, don't we? That the believers are praying. And then we see fire come down on Not on the building, not in the temple in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. The temple's in Jerusalem at the time. The fire doesn't come down in the temple. The fire comes down on the heads of the believers. Doesn't burn them up. And the Spirit of God is in their midst. And then they go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Paul is saying, don't you know? that it's not that building anymore that is the temple. It is the body of Christ. It is the church. It is us together, those who believe in Jesus and who are followers of him, who are growing up in him. Together, we are God's temple. We are the meeting place between uh, heaven and earth. It is when people want to know, how in the world do I get close to God? They come to the people of God. They come to the people of God who, by his spirit, tell them the good news of Jesus. Right? Who tell them about the forgiveness that they have in Jesus. Who demonstrate that there is a new way of life because of Jesus. A life by his spirit. Now, uh, once we kind of wrap our minds around this, Doesn't it make sense then how frustrated Paul is at the people who are God's very temple are tearing each other down and dividing up and going, oh, well, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. I'm I'm of uh, this teacher or of that teacher. Like this isn't a competition. This is cooperation. When we look at the way in which um, God has given particular gifts to be used for his service. You can think about the in the temple of the Old Testament, and there were these articles of gold and silver, etc. And we just read in the uh, children's sermon this morning about when people were using those items incorrectly, right? These were items that had been set apart for a holy purpose. And then we find somebody who does not respect that they had been set apart for a holy purpose. And using those same items for partying and um, 
all kinds of things. And they're destroyed. Now what happens? I mean, this is what he says here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. That's what we just saw in the writing on the wall. Uh, but he continues and doesn't just say, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. He then says, and you together are that temple. Uh, one commentary I looked at you know, points out that the temple is sacred or holy a word that denotes separation from sin and full dedication to God. And so since the, the temple is the entire people of God, uh, what Paul means by sacred is that the goal for the whole congregation of believers is that they separate themselves from sin and dedicate themselves to the service of the Lord God. Right? Same way that those items of gold and silver in, uh, in the temple before had been set apart uh, for a special purpose, so we have been set apart for a special purpose together. And then he, the author of this commentary continues and says, but what if their leaders do the opposite? What if rather than inspire the people into living a lifestyle of holiness and consecration to God and in doing his work, they entrap believers more and more into patterns of behavior that are linked with the foolish wisdom of the world? What if they advocate divisions and champion Jealousy and quarreling, like we saw in verse 3. The sadly church leaders have been known to do such things. And as far as Paul is concerned, such activity will destroy God's temple. As a result, God will have little choice but to punish such leaders with some form of destruction. Indeed, being a church leader is serious business, he says. We mentioned earlier this idea of uh, competition or cooperation. And you know, competition can lead to great things in athletics. It can lead uh, to amazing things in the world of business or innovation, those kinds of things. In the church, what often uh, competition will lead to is ear-tickling false teachers. Because if what you're going after is uh, what the people want. <laughs> you can get that. But not by being faithful and obedient to God. And um, so when we have people who are staying true to God, we need to not be dividing with them. Even if they do things a little differently. I mentioned we, you know, we went to Impact this past uh, week. And one of the things that I really like about Impact, we have a worship service every night. Full worship service every night. Uh, and we have music and preaching. But it's, here's the thing. It's not the same person preaching every night. It's not the same band leading the music every night. It's different every night. It looks different. There's a different uh, style about all of it. And one of the reasons why I really like that is so that you don't have people go to impact and they go and they experience uh, God in a new way and they're like, this is wonderful and I want to uh, follow God 
with everything I am now. And so I'm going to go home, and now I feel like what I have to do in order to follow God is to find something that looks just like that. That's not it. And so I love that the way that there is no looks just like that at impact, right? Every night it looks different. And the things that are the same is that every night it's about the word of God. Every night it's about who Jesus is. Every night it's about praising God for what he has done for us. It's all about him. It's not about the style of the speaker. It's not about the style of the music. It's about praising and worshiping God and giving him your everything. And um, and so here again, we have uh, Paul talking to this church that has been influenced by the world and is living in the ways of the world as they continue to divide among the very people who are trying so hard to work together. (laughs) One more. He ends by saying, um, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. The present and the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This commentary also says, Paul and Apollos, rather than being champions of rival groups, have the same goal with the Corinthian believers, to serve their spiritual needs and to point out their wealth in Christ. This, uh, this past week, we had 11 different uh, leaders from El Dorado go to Impact. We had five different small groups that I mentioned. We had one purpose, and we were united, and there was not competition between uh, between the churches of El Dorado. We went as one church. Uh, it was funny. We were in a leaders meeting at one point, and somebody asked the question, hey, how many churches are there that have come to impact? My sweet Jonathan, <laughs> uh, who's, uh, who's one of our leaders this year, was like, only one church. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Um, and so we had people from El Dorado uh, sign up where you had to, which church do you are you mostly uh, connected with? from six different churches in El Dorado. But when we went, we went as one church. One. This has been Paul's message. Let me get the slide up there. This is the overview of 1 Corinthians as the Bible Project presents it in their video. So watch it. Next one. Zooming in on chapters 1 through 4, this is what he's been on and on and on about for the whole first four chapters is as he's seeing everything through the lens of Jesus and the gospel and the problem they were having, the divisions, as everybody's divided, but it says he responds with the gospel because because of the resurrection, we have a reason for unity. He's how the church is a community of people centered around Jesus. And we have seen this in passage after passage after passage that Paul just keeps on. We'll give you another metaphor if this helps. We'll give you another metaphor if this helps, but this is what it's all about. Jesus is the foundation. We build in line with who he is and what he has done. And we work together as his people and as his servants, as those who have been set apart for a special purpose. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.